brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go again, Higher Side Chatters. How the hell are you? From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and we're all well aware that we're born into a world where corporate behemoths rule the land. Whether we're talking about food, medicine, media, or really any other crucial industry, you can find a handful of companies steering their respective sectors towards private profit and away from public good. Typically, we see a shocking amount of regulatory capture and the government agencies set up to police them, a revolving door of corporate loyalists moving into watchdog positions only to take the teeth out of them and clear a path for their true masters, a slashing of crucial regulations, and even a suppression of scientific testing that might show concerning results, if they do the testing at all. It's a template we could apply many places, but few are as impactful or as world-changing as the introduction of genetically engineered agriculture. As if taking a page right out of the tobacco industry playbook, the billion-dollar players responsible have invested heavily in lobbyists, positive PR, and media mouthpieces to convince you there is nothing to see here. But one thing they don't have is the support of today's amazing guest, Stephen M. Drucker. A true champion of the people, Stephen Drucker is a public interest attorney who founded the Alliance for Biointegrity and initiated a lawsuit in 1998 that forced the FDA to divulge its internal files on genetically engineered foods. A telling trove of over 40,000 pages of memos, studies, and most importantly, warnings and concerns from FDA scientists that were ignored and suppressed by their superiors. While the contents of these freshly available documents became the basis for his crucial book, Altered Genes, Twisted Truth, How the Venture to Genetically Engineer Our Food Has Subverted Science, Corrupted Government, and Systematically Deceived the Public. A startling expose of an enormous fraud, in fact, quite possibly the biggest and most damaging scientific fraud in history. Stephen is also now a prominent commentator on the risks and regulatory issues of GE Foods and has served on the food safety panels at conferences conducted by the National Research Council and the Food and Drug Administration. He has been invited to speak at many universities and has met with government officials worldwide, including the United Kingdom's Environmental Minister, Canada's Health Minister, and the heads of food safety for the UK, France, Ireland, and Australia. 
and in 2017, he also received a Luxembourg Peace Prize for outstanding work on behalf of the environment. So let's break it down. The activist attorney and the twisted truth revealer himself, Stephen, welcome to the higher side. <laughs> thank you, Greg, and thank you for that nice introduction. It's a pleasure to be uh, talking with you in this fire, higher side chat. <laughs> thank you. This is a true honor for me. Your book is required reading for anyone who really wants to get to the heart of this GMO issue, and it's just covered in an avalanche of praise from doctors and biochemistry professors, geneticists, engineers, and even Jane Goodall, who all pretty much say the same thing, meticulously documented, irrefutable evidence, clear and ironclad logic. It really is impressive. And I figured we could kick this off with a little more context for that journey. Your introduction to the book is entitled, How I Reluctantly Became an Activist. Can you tell us a little bit about the path that led to this lawsuit and ultimately these documents being released? Well, uh, as the title stated, it, it was with reluctance that I actually got into this whole issue as an activist. I became concerned, basically, as the, as the introduction explains, in early uh, 19... Uh, 96, I began doing something that unfortunately not enough Americans or people anywhere were doing, and I began to learn the facts about this massive venture to reconfigure the genetic core of the world's food supply. And I had been concerned for many years with food safety issues, and I thought I was pretty up on them. But uh, I was somewhat blindsided by the the state of the of this massive venture the massive ag biotech venture at that point, because I had no idea that uh, there were plans underway and, in fact, crops in the pipeline uh, about ready to be released uh, with genetically engineered DNA. And um, I wanted to know more about what was happening. And uh, as the introduction states, the more I learned, the more I became concerned. And it it did become quickly, rather quickly apparent that there was a major gap between the claims that were being made by the proponents of genetically engineered foods and the facts themselves. And I uh, eventually realized that uh, one thing that, that I thought could be very effective in trying to slow down the juggernaut was a lawsuit against the Food and Drug Administration the FDA, challenging their policy because the FDA had made a presumption in 1992 that basically all genetically engineered foods would be safe and that they could basically just give them a blanket uh, presumption of generally recognized as safe. And they were had pretty much given a green light for the manufacturers just to dump any G GE food on the American market that they wanted to without without having to uh, go through any safety testing at all and without providing labels to uh, inform the consumers about the genetic configurations that had uh, that had been done to their foods and I really did not that didn't sit well with me it didn't sit well with a lot of other people who understood what was going on I did not envision myself is playing a key role in the lawsuit because uh, 
I hadn't really been involved in litigation, although I have a law degree from University of California, Berkeley. I hadn't been practicing law and hadn't done any litigation. And uh, I was involved in some other project dear to my heart. So my goal was just to get some public interest group inspired, a group that had the resources, and let them do the lawsuit. And that's how I began, was just contacting public interest groups trying to get them sold on the idea of doing a lawsuit. As it turned out, everybody with whom I spoke thought it was a great idea to do the lawsuit, but they also thought I actually was planning to do it, and I was just trying to inform them about it. And when I said, no, I'm trying to get you to do it, they always had one or another reason as to why they weren't prepared, their group wasn't prepared to do it. <laughs> Eventually, in speaking with a friend who was a molecular biologist, uh, and explaining the situation to him, you know, he said, Steve, you know, you got to realize this is your baby. You have the idea, you have the, the enthusiasm, and if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. And uh, much as I didn't want to accept that assessment, deep down I had a feeling it was right. And so I decided, well, I guess I'm going to have to, to start the public interest organization that'll basically uh, spearhead this lawsuit. So I've, in September of 1996, I founded the Alliance for Biointegrity. And um, as its president and executive director, uh, began to move ahead vigorously to to basically mount the lawsuit, to assemble the financial resources, to get plaintiffs together. And uh, it took until May of 1998 until uh, that suit was filed in federal district court in, in uh, Washington, D.C. And a very key component of being able to have that suit filed was having attracted the attention of the International Center for Technology Assessment in Washington, D.C., a very good public interest group. They had a good legal team. They, uh, they were skilled at bringing lawsuits against federal administrative agencies. They liked the idea of the lawsuit, and they became in, involved as attorneys of record. I, uh, besides organizing the main components of the plaintiffs, plaintiff group and, and raising a lot of the initial funding that was needed, I eventually became involved as a lawyer too and spent several months really in Washington, D.C., collaborating with uh, that organization and doing some of the important research on the food safety issues and helping write the uh, the legal documents and the briefs that were filed with the court. Mm -hmm. Yes, noble use of your skills with a huge impact, because now we know much more than we did then, which we'll of course get into. And as well as reading your book, I've also heard some of the presentations you've given. And in one instance, you started it by asking people to imagine a miraculous situation in which everyone's opinions on GMOs becomes consistent with our best scientific knowledge rather than the rhetoric, because then we'd all be concerned. And I really love that because the criticism so often hurled at GMO skeptics is that it's our arguments that are not scientific and we should just defer to the experts. Help people understand how that is actually backwards. <laughs> right. Uh, well, thank you for uh, listening to some of my presentations. And you're right, that's uh, that's the way I've begun several talks, I think it's effective because, as you say, what we continually hear through the media is that uh, there's a 
tremendous scientific consensus and that all the science is on the side of the, the safety of these foods and that you, you one, one hears scientists complaining time and again that, oh, if uh, scientists who propound these foods, who, who advocate these foods, if only the public understood the facts, then there wouldn't be any of this opposition. And that if the public were adequately informed, all the opposition would disappear. And as I show in those talks, and as my book fully demonstrates, very, very fully demonstrates, actually, as you said, it's just the other way around. If the public and the our government uh, decision makers actually understood the facts, if their opinions were in line with the best scientific knowledge available, then the phenomenon that would quickly vanish would not be the opposition to genetically engineered foods, but the foods themselves. And that is why, despite their, you know, purporting to want to educate people, the proponents of genetically engineered food, whether they're in industry or in science, whether they uh, are in universities or scientific institutions, if they're pushing genetically engineered foods, then they almost always are misrepresenting key facts and at minimum suppressing key facts. And instead of educating the public as they claim to wish to do, they're actually keeping the, the public in the dark to a significant extent and often significantly confused and misled. And uh, it's one of the major themes of my book that this massive venture to reconfigure the genetic core of the world's food supply, although it purports to rest on solid science, actually rests on ignoring science and to a large extent subverting science, and it really rests on a foundation of falsehood and fraud. And it could not stand an honest airing of the facts. It would quickly collapse. Mm -hmm. Very well said. And exactly as you just mentioned, uh, your book does cover a lot of ground, but you do say the key fraud in all this in plain language is that as genetically engineered agriculture was being developed, the memos and the warnings of FDA employed scientists in the lab were suppressed by their superiors who lied and said these foods were different in no significant way. And I really want people to understand that point. Can you elaborate on some of the evidence for that that maybe came through in those documents that were disclosed. Sure. And I mentioned that uh, that was the key fraud, and it was because, as I mentioned earlier in, in this chat, it was in May of 1992 that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration basically got the jump on all of the other major food regulatory agencies in other countries and became really the first uh, major, to my knowledge, the first major governmental food regulatory agency to take a public position on genetically engineered foods. And they declared that there was basically a, an overwhelming consensus within the scientific community that genetic engineering is essentially as safe as traditional breeding techniques in creating new varieties of foods, basically at least as safe, if not safer, than just uh, pollen-based reproduction through naturally available sexual pathways, which is the way farmers had been producing new varieties for 
millennia, uh, just letting it happen through pollen and uh, natural reproduction. They said even that, the genetic engineering, is essentially no different and at least as safe. They also stated that the agency was not aware of any information showing that foods produced through genetic engineering techniques differ in any uniform or meaningful way from other foods. Now, that was an outright lie, because as you've mentioned, uh, on discovery, early on in the lawsuit, the FDA was compelled to hand over all of their internal files relative to their uh, policy on genetically engineered foods. And I think in the future, I'll just be often referring to them as GMOs. It's shorthand. But I mean by that, when I say GMOs in the context of this broadcast, I mean genetically engineered or genetically modified foods. So, but that was actually a major lie because I found in going through the uh, files, as you mentioned, was over 40,000 pages there were many memos from the FDA's own experts whom the FDA had asked to actually review the issue, and they did review it, and they actually thought the FDA wanted them to function as uh, responsible scientists, which they did. And being responsible scientists, they could recognize that there are significant differences between producing foods through conventional means and producing them through recombinant DNA techniques or genetic engineering. And they they cautioned, they issued many cautions. They explained how the genetic engineering process is not as precise and predictable as its proponents claimed. They stated there was a risk of unintended side effects any time that that technique was used to produce a new food and uh, explained how food-bearing organisms are complicated, that their DNA can be disrupted, that there are several different ways in which deleterious uh, side effects could be created, and that in total, uh, in, the, in the holistic viewpoint, the risks were going to be not only different but greater, and that the foods needed to be tested carefully because especially there could be risks of unintended new toxins, new toxic poisonous substances that were generated within that plant that had never been even in that species before, might have never even been seen on the face of the earth before. So it'd be very difficult for them to be detected through superficial inspections, that there would need to be a rigorous testing of the whole food, the whole food, and uh, to make sure that it was actually safe. And they also stated that in addition to novel toxins, there could be novel allergens as well. And that, again, the allergenic potential of these foods would be very difficult to assess. In fact, the FDA's own biotechnology manager stated that very clearly in a letter to a Canadian health official in either September or October of 1991, that the allergenic potential would be hard to predict. He also acknowledged that at that point, there was not a consensus about safety in the scientific community. Clear consensus that even outside of the FDA, there was not a scientific consensus. And he knew full well that within the FDA, to the extent that 
there was a consensus, it was that these foods entail unique risks. In fact, that was the consensus of the FDA scientists that were on the biotechnology task force carefully studying the issue. So, so strong, so pervasive was that consensus within the FDA that an FDA biotechnology, I'm sorry, an FDA compliance officer whose job it was to review all of the data, all of the memos, wrote in a very strong memo to the biotechnology coordinator in January of 1992 that the processes of genetic engineering and traditional breeding are different, and according to the technical experts in the agency, they lead to different risks. A very strong statement. But what happened? A few months later, the FDA, the FDA's administrators, decision makers, came out with that policy statement stating that they were not aware of any information showing that genetically engineered foods differed in any uniform or meaningful way. Now, <laughs> I think we could all agree that uh, memos from your own scientists count as information and that the statement the FDA made counts as disinformation. So, and also, again, the claim that these foods were generally recognized as safe within the scientific community again, was a fraudulent claim because they knew that, again, as what I've said shows, the overwhelming consensus within the FDA's own scientific staff was these foods are different and they entail unique risks, greater risks. And the FDA's own biotechnology coordinator had acknowledged there was not a consensus about safety in the scientific community. So really, a major double lie was told there but the FDA got away with it, and uh, nobody knew really the extent to, to which that was a lie until we were able to get our hands on the FDA's mem internal files. More people would know about that if the mainstream American media had reported that. It certainly has been reported to them. I have given the media, the major media outlets, uh, solid documentation of the FDA's frauds and they've covered it up consistently. Unfortunately, that's an entire chapter in the book, The Malfunction of the Mainstream American Media. And unfortunately, they've fallen, fallen down on the job when it comes to exposing the risks of GMOs. Yes, they very much have. And that's a great summary. I really love drilling home the fact that the FDA knew because government often hides behind ignorance or incompetence. And it's nice to have that paper trail that shows that there was prior knowledge. But it seems like with the technique itself, one of the foundational issues is that these scientists are taught this mindset that an organism is like a puzzle where you can just take out a piece here, replace a piece there, and it doesn't have an effect on the whole of the organism. But in truth, nature is complex and holistic, and it's not plug and play. In fact, sometimes its own defenses are triggered when there's something inside of it that shouldn't be there naturally. So this is kind of how toxins emerge that aren't expected just by doing even small tweaks to these organisms, correct? It could be. That's the case. And in fact, the very first ingestible product that was created through uh, genetic engineering was a food supplement 
of the essential amino acid L-tryptophan, which actually came to the market in the mid-1980s and actually was creating some uh, serious illnesses, we didn't, we meaning the, the scientific community and medical community, what didn't become aware of the, of the problem until a very strong, a much stronger version of genetically engineered bacteria that was producing uh, this supplement were used. So there were genetically engineered bacteria. They were being they had been given some extra copies of their own genes. It wasn't even foreign genetic material that was put in, but they were being forced, and I'm not, and I'm using that term advisedly, they were being forced to overproduce something they ordinarily produce anyway. But when they ordinarily produce it, it's safe for them, and it can be harvested from them and put into supplements. None of the supplements produced through conventional bacteria uh, had ever caused problems. But the supplements produced through these bacteria that were hyperproducing, hyperproducing that amino acid because through uh, genetic engineering did create not only a problem, but a major epidemic. So when the epidemic was, was created in 1989 and 1990, then finally it came to the attention. It popped up People looking back could see that there were even problems in the earlier in the earlier supplements that were produced from bacteria that had not been pushed quite so hard, but they had been pushed too hard, abnormally hard. But when they really jacked it up, really hyperproduced, were forced to hyperproduce, that's when the problem reached epidemic proportions. Now, getting back to your initial question, that was compared to most genetically engineered foods, a fairly minor tweak, because as said, it was just extra copies of the bacteria's own genes were used in creating, uh, in synthesizing the L-tryptophan. The thing that was different was they were being forced to produce it much more rapidly uh, than they usually do and in much greater quantities. And that apparently the best scientific evidence points to that as having uh, created a destabilization in the bacteria's metabolism that led to the creation of some unusual contaminants, at least one of which was highly toxic at a very low level of concentration. In fact, another sobering fact is those supplements, those L-tryptophan supplements were refined products. They weren't like whole foods. They were refined and they were tested to be pharmacopically pure, pharmacologically pure. Their level of purity was such that even had there been toxic contaminants, they should have been at such a low level of concentration that they shouldn't have caused any problem anyway. So from the standpoint of pharmacology, those supplements were pure. But from the standpoint of the human consumers, or two thousands of them, they weren't. They were toxic. They killed dozens of Americans and seriously sickened between four and 5,000, according to the most recent estimates of the Center for D Disease Control. So they were not at all benign, even they, they were pharmacologically pure. That shows how important it is to do tests to make sure that genetically engineered foods are safe, that they don't harbor unusual toxicants at very low levels. And that kind of testing has not been required.
Mm. Yes, I love that example. It's one of the strongest points that I learned about from digesting your work because you always hear that there's no evidence that GMOs can be harmful to humans. Well, you know, except for this first genetically engineered product to ever hit the market, which made 5,000 people seriously sick and hundreds of people still haven't recovered from. Like, they'll just never be the same. And as you said, this is a pretty simple version of genetic engineering. And it's like, what does that really say about the risks of crossing genetics or species that shouldn't even be in the same category if you have problems at even this base level? Yes, it's a good point. You've certainly done your homework, Greg, and I appreciate that you have read the book as thoroughly as you have. And uh, because what you're saying is very important. And if I can uh, amplify just a bit more on my points, the genetically engineered food crops, even if they, and rarely are they just using genes from that species only, even if they were, that could be a problem because just about every genetically engineered food on the market is being forced to overproduce at least one product and usually more, one gene product. So, and usually these genes are from foreign species, genes that have never been in that species before. And uh, we don't know what a safe level of uh, production of that gene is within that species, but certainly they are being forced to overproduce at a level that would raise concern even if it was just one of their own genes. Even if we didn't add any gene, but just forced one one or two of the native genes to overproduce like that, that would entail a food safety risk. So we've got that risk really multiplied, amplified, because not, not only is our one or more genes being forced to hyperproduce in these genetically engineered foods, we don't really, <laughs> those genes, as you said, haven't been there before for the most part, haven't been in that species. So that can create additional problems in several respects. Right, right. And let me also ask you about the typical pro-GMO talking points that you have to combat. Because I'm sure they're the same arguments that some of us that are listening are going to get into or hear when we have these conversations with friends and family. What are some of the things that you hear most often and how do you respond to them? Well, uh, one of the things, of course, is the claim that the FDA has carefully uh, tested these because often the claim is the FDA has been doing careful testing or at least rigorously regulating them and they say they're safe. Well, of course, the FDA actually, first, we know the FDA has been lying repeatedly. They lied about the L-tryptophan incident as well. They were one of the biggest liars that actually uh, allowed the genetic engineering juggernaut to continue because if the facts on that epidemic had come out, it would have really slowed everything, probably would have stopped the whole uh, genetic engineering food venture in its tracks. But the FDA, uh, through a, a series of frauds on that, was able to create a lot of confusion and fool people and they were working hand in glove with the industry, it appears, but they were certainly doing the industry's work for them. The FDA, by the way, I should note, has admitted in writing that it has an agenda to 
uh, promote biotechnology. So it admits that, and it has had that agenda since the 1980s during the Reagan administration. And every successive presidential administration in the United States, whether Republican or Democrat, has continued to push the promotional policy uh, for the federal executive agencies, for the FDA, for the USDA, for the EPA. They have all pushed it very strongly. So, and that is documented. I'm not making that up. It's not some wild conspiracy theory. The FDA even admits that they have the policy to promote the biotechnology sector, and they've done an excellent job of promoting it. They've fallen flat on their main responsibility, which is to protect the safety of our food and to behave in a scientific manner and uphold ethics. They've been lying. They've been ignoring science. And they have sided with the biotech industry instead of the American consumer. And, uh, you know, those are facts. They're backed up in the book. So you hear that a lot. People actually think that the FDA has been actually doing tests. They're not doing any regulation on these foods at all. They're not requiring any tests to be made on them. They certainly aren't performing their own tests. And as the FDA's own biotechnology strategic manager once admitted in writing, the FDA, what the FDA is doing when it does voluntary consultations, it encourages Monsanto and DuPont and the other manufacturers to voluntarily consult with it about the various foods that they're going, that they want to release on our market. But that's a smokescreen. It's to then give the industry the, the right to brag, see, we've actually gone through FDA regulation, but it's not regulation at all. It's voluntary. And as the FDA's own strategic manager is admitted, it's not a scientific review at all because the FDA doesn't even require original test data. They basically let the Monsanto give them whatever they want to give them, and they don't even formally approve of the food. They just state, we understand that you think your food is safe. So it's a sham process to give the illusion that there's some real regulation going on. And again, it's it's bamboozled a lot of people. So that's one one claim that I hear a lot. It's easy to refute if people actually want to listen to the evidence. And many people are so close-minded they don't want to hear the evidence. Another of the claim is that there is a overwhelming consensus within the scientific community that genetically engineered foods are at least as safe as conventionally produced foods, and that this consensus is as strong as the scientific consensus that the climate is warming and that human activity is playing a significant role in that. That's just not true, because whereas not a single, to my knowledge, not a single respected scientific organization, independent scientific organization, has dissented from the from the consensus opinion about global warming within the scientific community. Several eminent scientific organizations have warned about the uh, risks of genetically engineered foods and stated that the regulation is not strict enough, that the level of testing is not at all rigorous enough. And one of those organizations is the Royal Society of Canada, that nation's uh, premier scientific organization. It's their National Academy of Science. In 2001, a panel of experts of the Royal Society of Canada released a very long, comprehensive report 
on genetically engineered foods titled Elements of Precaution, and they made the case for a much stricter precautionary approach than the Canadian regulators were then uh, implying and or that the EU was then employing, and far stricter than the U.S., which, of course, didn't uh, require any regulation at all. And uh, two of the main conclusions of that expert report were that the default prediction, and that was their term, the default prediction for every genetically engineered food should be that the engineering process, the genetic reconfiguration process, has created some unintended side effect or side effects that could have rendered that product harmful for the human or the animal consumer. And one of the second main conclusions was that uh, it is scientifically unjustifiable, scientifically unjustified to presume that any genetically engineered food is safe based on the kinds of testing that was then currently in place. And the kinds, if somebody thinks, well, that was 2001, so things are better now. Yes, in the European Union, uh, there is some stricter level of testing required now, but not in Canada and not in the U.S. But even in the EU, what is being required uh, wasn't instituted until 2013, quite a long time after genetically engineered foods began to permeate the North American market. And secondly, the kind of testing that is now required in the European Union is still much laxer than the kind of testing than the Canadian experts stated is necessary. So uh, that report, which has never been revised nor retracted, is still as relevant today as it was back in 2001. And uh, so that's a very important point. Also, the Public Health Association of Australia, beginning in 2000, was coming out with many cautionary statements about the risks of GM foods, strongly criticizing the regulatory framework. And most recently, in 2016, their policy statement on genetically engineered foods called for an immediate freeze on the importation or planting or marketing of genetically engineered foods until each one of them has been demonstrated to be safe through long-term testing performed independently of the industry. Well, that standard has, has not been met at all. And uh, British Medical Association has also uh, issued cautionary statements. So, and other organizations as well, the Academy of Environmental Medicine. So again, a very, these claims that the consensus about scientific consensus about genetically engineered foods is on a par with the scientific consensus regarding climate change, false. And there never has been a scientific consensus about safety of the genetically engineered foods. So that's very important to know. And that's one of the major falsehoods that I come up, up against all the time. And most of your listeners have probably heard that as well. And most commentators in the mainstream media believe that. They've been led to believe that's the case. Another major falsehood, or do you want to interject something here? I've been speaking for quite a while. <laughs> well, I was going to say that those are two great ones that I think everyone's heard. And it is so scary that these things are rubber stamped based on what you call phantom data and then dumped on the market without any tracking or accountability. And we really can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> One I was going to bring up was uh, 
Something I often hear trying to paint Monsanto as the hero of the story is that we need this technology for drought-tolerant or pest-resistant crops to feed the world's growing population, that it's a necessary evil. And this is a bit of a myth, it seems. Yeah, it's more than a myth. Again, that flies in the face of so many facts. For instance, one of the major studies that actually studied what is needed to meet the world's food needs during the next 50 years was co-sponsored by the World Bank and four United Nations agencies. So those are hardly radical anti-technological agencies. It was a four-year study. It was conducted by more than 400 experts from 80 countries and has been endorsed by 58 governments. It is called the International Assessment of Agricultural Knowledge, Science, and Technology for Development. And its assessment of genetic engineering flew in the face of the promotional claims that you just uh, stated, Greg, by concluding that genetic engineering is not essential for solving the problem of hunger. Now, they did endorse, the experts who wrote that report did endorse a different approach. They called for the development of what they what they termed agroecological methods of production. Those methods require fewer inputs. They conserve resources. They preserve the soil. Those methods are generally either organic or near organic. They do not rely on GMOs. They don't rely on the pesticides that are required by so many of the GMO crops. They increase yields better than GMOs have been shown to do. And they also build pest protection, but through natural means that do not create harm to the farmers or the ultimate consumer or the environment. They induce hardier crops and greater soil fertility. And when the head of that report was asked at, a, at the press conference at which it was announced, so do you see any role for genetic engineering in meeting the world's future food needs? He stated, well, the, the frank answer is no. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, And the deputy director of that gave the same negative answer. So again, the proponents never mentioned that study. In fact, the United States, uh, Monsanto, Industry was involved in that, too. There were industry members. When Monsanto saw that it was going against them, they pulled out so they could uh, they could attack it. But as I mentioned, there were there were hundreds of more than 400 experts from 80 countries were involved in producing that report. It was comprehensive. It was thorough. But because it came down with actually a fact based judgment on GMOs, you don't hear about it in the mainstream media. It's been pretty much ignored in this country. Our government has ignored it, and uh, the pro proponents of genetic engineering ignore it, which is too bad. And it's in line with many other studies that show that small-scale farming based on agroecological techniques can outproduce large-scale industrial agriculture, even when it uses GMOs. Mm. Very telling, very telling. And man, this is just cruising right along. I can't believe it. But I wanted to address this too. It comes up in the book and I'll just use a quote from you. Before we do that, I did, let me get to one of the other main falsehoods that, that is 
important to undermine. And then please get back to the question you're about to ask. Sorry to sure. interject. No, no, it's important. Concerned we keep going, I'll forget we won't get back to this. Sure. And that's the claim, again, which one hears repeated time and again as if it's a scientific truth in the mainstream media or at academic conferences, or I get it when I speak at universities and scientists in the audience want to object, they say. And the claim is that there has been no substantiated evidence of any harm that has been caused by any genetically engineered food. And of course, we, we, I talked about the, uh, the L-tryptophan incident, but if we go to the genetically engineered crops that have been introduced, there's a claim no crop, no genetically engineered food crop has ever been shown to have an adverse effect. That's just not true. There are many, many sound studies published in the peer-reviewed scientific literature documenting harm, serious harm in several cases, in laboratory animals that were in the experimental group that was unfortunate enough to be fed the genetically engineered food instead of the conventional food. And that's why these experiments are done, because if there are problems with the animals, then the food's not supposed to get on the market until uh, changes are made or you know we, we can show that those problems were in fact not related to the food. But what time and again happens is the proponents of genetically engineered food, and this includes eminent scientists and scientific organizations, ignore that data and they make this claim. And then they all start reciting one another's claims and they act as if it's true. You know, there's an old saying, if you repeat a lie long enough, people start believing it's true. If you keep repeating it, that's what they're doing. And yet they're ignoring the data. But it is just a falsehood to state that there's been no evidence that any genetically engineered food has caused harm. There's abundant evidence of that. And many of the studies that claim that a GMO food didn't cause harm have been shoddy studies that were not conducted with the same level of rigor as many of the studies that did show harm. So it's very important that we understand what the data does show, and that these claims of no harm has been documented are exposed for the falsehoods that they are. And just I want to make another point before then you can ask that question you were about to do when I interrupted you, and that is that one of the key points of my book is that the main misrepresentations that have enabled the genetically engineered food venture to not only advance, but actually to survive, have not come from Monsanto and DuPont and Syngenta. They have come from regulatory agencies like the FDA or Canada's Food Regulatory Agency or from and from the scientific establishment, from respected elements of the scientific establishment, be they university sci biologists or organizations like the American Association for the Advancement of Science or the National Academy of Science. And I know that's hard for a lot of people to get their heads around. How could the National Academy of Science be misrepresenting facts? How could they be trying to suppress evidence and confuse the public? Unfortunately, that's happened. That has been happening and consistently through the National Academy of Science. And my book documents that. It's a sorry state of affairs. I wish it were otherwise, but it's not. And my book documents uh, 
documents that sorry state of reality. Yes, yes. Very important point. I'm really glad you mentioned that and that we squeezed it into the first hour because that's a real aspect that I found super interesting because I have a tendency to always go to the corporations, DuPont, Monsanto, Bayer, because they're the producers and they're also the profiteers. And honestly, it's hard to parse completely when they have so many executives going back and forth between corporations and government. But that's an interesting thing you bring up, that the most serious misrepresentations actually come from the scientific institutions. It's odd because we know what Monsanto's incentive would be to lie. It'd be money. But what are the motivations from the scientific institutions? Okay. And if, again, it's important to point out Monsanto and many manufacturers have been behaving very badly. It's just if the scientific community did not back them up, if the scientific community actually exposed the falsehoods for what they are, as the scientific community has been doing admirably in the case of climate change, they've been exposing the misrepresentations of the fossil fuel industry and the other industries that are you know, threatened by uh, by exposing the facts of climate change. But it's very different, unfortunately, in the case of GMOs. And that's why it's so dangerous, the GMO juggernaut, because you've got the scientific establishment aligned with the major corporations. So it's scary. What is their motivation? Well, they're mixed motivations. Uh, as my book documents, many, many scientists who are members of the National Academy of Sciences or on important have important positions do have financial conflicts of interest because with the advent of genetic engineering bi biologists were able to patent you know gene this gene or that gene this kind of change this this uh, crop and so then they get a financial stake in a biotech company or that way, or if not through ownership, then they can get lucrative consulting contracts. And uh, this has happened too. But there are cases, many cases in which scientists do not appear to have any financial conflict of interest, but they still are pushing GMOs and have lost sight of, of ethics and have actually been acting as spin doctors and sometimes worse. And it's difficult to understand the psychology. My book goes into that little. But the main thing is we don't need to establish motive. It's not like trying to establish that somebody's guilty of first degree murder where you have to show they their state of mind, they, you know, premeditated. I don't have to show the state of mind of any scientist. All I have to show is their statements that are contradicted by hard evidence. Okay. So I've shown that in the book. So their motivation is irrelevant for that point. But obviously, we want to know how could it have happened? And a lot of it is arrogance, I believe. A lot of it is scientists thinking, we know better, we can do this, and feeling somehow invested psychologically in this venture. Because remember, in climate change, they're not invested in, in it, uh, except maybe a few scientists who might be have by now invested in, uh, you know, uh, solar energy or something. But what I'm saying is the climate scientists, the people doing climate science, you know, they're just trying to, to act as scientists. And uh, th they're not pushing a technology. Whereas genetic engineering became identified as this great scientific revolution. And I think 
to that extent, scientists then were made to feel that they have to stand up and defend it. And there's been a lot of propaganda going around that have convinced scientists of that. And it's difficult to fight back against it because they think that there's some equation between defending GMOs and defending science. And that does not happen. In fact, if science were truly being defended in this issue, if the facts had actually been told and uh, had been fully and truthfully communicated, and if good scientific research had been performed, and if the good research that has been performed hadn't been trashed out or suppressed, genetically engineered foods couldn't have been on the market today. We wouldn't really be, I wouldn't have had to write the book. And that is a problem. And that is why one of the eminent biologists that wrote a very strong recommendation for my book, Philip Regal, stated that what my book shows is that what's at stake is not only the safety of our food, but the future of science itself. Science has mm. become corrupted to a very large extent, and it has to stop. And so I, I always am amused when if I speak at a, at a university and somebody from the audience tries to accuse me of being anti-science, and I said, I'm trying to defend science. Are you saying that by trying to bring out the facts, I'm somehow assaulting science? That's a, that's a sorry state of affairs. If somebody who's trying to bring out the facts is actually accused of being anti-science, because science has to be, you can't represent science if you're misrepresenting the facts. Yes, cheers to that. That's uh, definitely a theme around here. And blind trust in scientific authorities is an issue surfacing in many sectors, as that quote you just read is indicating. And I'm glad we took the time to get a couple more arguments out there because helping people have the conversation and have convincing arguments and truths in their arsenal is very important because it's not enough to just be right. We have to be persuasive as well. So I think all that is great context. And before I let you go, what is next for you? Are you working on other litigation, other books, any other activist projects on this particular subject? Well, not other uh, litigation at this point, although many people have urged me to do that. My main focus has been on trying to get key people in the academic community or the regulatory committee uh, community or, you know, the, the intelligentsia to understand the facts and meeting with people and giving talks at universities and at conferences. And there are some very hopeful developments on the horizon. I can't discuss them right now, but some things that could make major turnarounds. And so I'm hopeful. I'm also hopeful that many of the people listening now will want to arm themselves with the evidence so that they can be stronger when they get into debates and arguments with Uncle Fred or some cousin who's a bio, you know, biologist at some university. And they, because my book is really a great resource filled with facts and not my opinion, but solid facts and uh, opinions of eminent scientific organizations or the opinions of the FDA scientists. And uh, so I hope that more people read it too, because everybody has influence. And the more people that know the facts, then they have their influence spreads. And eventually we're going to reach a tipping point where the truth will triumph. Here, here. <laughs> and it is the family holiday season after all, so important to keep these things in mind. Well, 
Thanks a lot. This has been really wonderful. Please leave the people with links or social media info or anything else they should know about following up on your work. Okay. Well, again, the name of the book is Altered Genes, Twisted Truth. Jane Goodall wrote the foreword in which she states it's one of the most important books of the last 50 years. And there are many endorsements of other scientists praising the book's solidity and importance. The website of the Alliance for Biointegrity uh, has a lot of good information, www.biointegrity.org, B-I-O-integrity.org. And you can read copies of 24 of the FDA's key memos up on that website. Also, the uh, book has a website, alteredgenestwistedtruth.com, and uh, there's some more information there, too. And uh, the book should be available at uh, bookstores. It's also, of course, available online. And again, I leave you with what I think is a hopeful message, and that is that I want science to prevail on this. I want the facts to prevail and if that, if those things happen, if the science prevails, if the facts prevail, then the problems of genetically engineering, the problems of the GMO venture will vanish very quickly. So again, there should not be a perceived dichotomy between science and concerns about GMOs, because the more people understand science and understand the facts, then the greater reason there is to have concerns about the risks of GMOs. Agreed. Well said. Amazing work. I love the book. It was great talking to you. You are the man. Keep fighting the good fight. Thank you so much, Greg. Well, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Stephen Drucker, mm, powerhouse guest on the GMO issue, and something we haven't talked directly about in some time. Marion Nestle was really great, but that was more about deceptive corporate food marketing and twisted nutritional science. The last time Joseph Farrell was here, we did touch on GMO politics a bit in the Plus Show, but that was more about how the Confessions of an Economic Hitman template is now being rolled out in places that are trying to push back against the GMO takeover and are trying to preserve their food sovereignty. You know how it goes. They coerce smaller nations into predatory loans like their naive college freshmen trying to get a free frisbee for the tailgate party. And then when these countries can't pay the loans, they say, hey guys, don't worry about it. Just let Standard Oil drop some rigs here and we'll call it a deal. Which is what they really want anyway. They don't actually just want the loan repaid. That's no fun. And of course, if these nations resist, then they send in the riot starters and get a coup d'etat a brewing. <laughs> and now that's going on in places that want to get GMO crops out and they want to start organic seed banks and all that. This is actually a very big deal. I'm waiting to find the book that really drills it all home. I could see Dr. Farrell writing it, or I could see it coming from F. William Ingdahl, who wrote Seeds of Destruction and is very knowledgeable about international geopolitics. But nevertheless, today was about the very foundational question of, is this stuff really safe? Because that's where you have to start the flowchart, you know? If this GMO agriculture is safe, 
than the stuff I just mentioned. You know, it's still about power and money and corporate greed. But if it's not safe, it's basically breaking the entire ecosystem of the planet. And Steven Drucker really brought it. Big thanks to him. I mean, he can die happy knowing he made a huge impact in getting information released from the grips of these shady corporations. And he's become very knowledgeable, and he has the scientific red flags down really well. And a major reason I wanted to do this show is because I think even I was a little swept up in that argument that GMO crops in general are safe. It's just these ones that are made to be resistant to glyphosate that are the actual issue. And I thought of it as one of those situations where we have a very acute problem and it's hiding under a larger terminology that gets everyone mixed up, because we've seen that tactic before too. But no, it's not just glyphosate, though that is a huge issue. It's actually many of these lab-altered frankenfoods, maybe all of them, because and I think this filters into ether physics and the complexity of our holistic system. But when you inject unknown components into a compartmentalized piece of the system, say a tomato, the organism recognizes something foreign and then seems to create toxins or puts out an immune response that seems to emerge out of nowhere. I say out of nowhere because it seems like they've got the components of a tomato mapped out pretty well, but even they are surprised by where some of this emerges from. I mean, I'm clearly not the scientist, but what I got out of this with, say, the toxic tryptophan incident was that even if you just throw off the natural ratios, the system tries to self-correct and produces things that are unexpected and harmful to consume. Well, why is it doing that? The impression I get is that it's trying to attack that manipulation because it's not supposed to be there. So I hate to throw out the baby with the bathwater and all that stuff, but it seems like I've seen enough examples to just say, don't do it. <laughs> Even something as simple as a fruit is not like a car where you can just switch out parts. And I say it relates to ether physics or even spirituality because I get this hunch that part of the issue is that everything is connected at levels of existence that we don't see or even really acknowledge in the mainstream. And it's these trains of thought that actually do get me thinking about biblical stories like the flood. Sure, these stories have been used and tweaked for maximum control effort, and maybe they were made up out of whole cloth too, but I do think it's provocative to look at where we are now all our tweaks and changes and abuses of the natural order. And it really is beyond us. And when you do these things at this insane corporate scale, they can screw up everything. And maybe that supreme consciousness in the sky does wipe the slate clean and reset. Indigenous cultures talk about appeasing or upsetting the gods all the time. And it's not like the clouds part and raw comes down and starts blasting away. The gods or whatever is out there just act through the system. They act through nature. So if the climate does turn towards something inhospitable, something actually hostile to human life, did we anger God? <laughs> I don't know. But for me, the best context for biblical stories is that they are warnings from the last time 
humanity was straying too far from the game that this whole thing is set up for us to play. And then you can factor in the jealous angels and spirits whispering in the ear of man, nah, it's all good. This CRISPR technology is going to be great. Come on, Silicon Valley, we can digitize the world. You know what I'm saying? They're egging us on. And then I start to get intrigued by the wisdom in these stories that are thousands of years old when I look at them as warnings that we should enjoy this place, but don't go tinkering under the hood so much. And these stories as warnings would not be nearly as compelling if tinkering under the hood didn't have all these negative consequences every time we see it. You know, the stories wouldn't work if this wasn't exactly what we're doing. Uh, yeah, so that was not really what I'd planned for this wrap-up, but, you know, the larger point, I guess, to me is that we needed a science-based re-examination of the GMO issue outside of the context of glyphosate. And an element of the show being the toxic tryptophan incident on the weekend of Thanksgiving, I mean, that's just one of those happy accidents that you just can't plan. I think it means we're doing something right. But anyway, I will be honest, you know, I get lazy and I buy regular ass fruits and vegetables all the time. The organic section is often smaller and it's more limited and not only right there is that a crazy sign that things are in a scary place, but I'm sure a lot of us are like me and we kind of need this reminder to push us towards being more vigilant with our choices. Another good example is aluminum. We've heard how the aluminum content of Alzheimer's sufferers' brains is off the charts, so I started trying to avoid it in all areas of life. And it didn't last long because, well, when I get out there with the boys doing man shit like golf or softball, you can't take glass bottles out there. So if you want to drink, you're drinking from cans. And then I do a little research on kegs because I'm thinking, oh, I'll just drink draft beers. And I find out they're not all stainless steel. A lot of them are aluminum too. And since San Diego is the microbrew capital of these here United States, I'm sure a lot of the smaller brands are using aluminum. And I'm not going to be that guy at the bar asking, uh, does Belching Beaver use aluminum kegs or stainless steel? Can you check on that for me? It's sad that you can't ask that question, but you really can't. And if that wasn't enough, we also do a lot of potluck dinners with the friend group, Thanksgiving being one of them. How much aluminum foil did you see at Thanksgiving? Probably at least some. It's just fucking everywhere, guys. So what can I do but acquiesce? I just let it go. And the same thing happens with GMO foods. You also can't be too vigilant about this stuff when you live in a house that has Wi-Fi everywhere and you keep a cell phone in your pocket. It all sucks! But today was a very useful show about food right on the heels of the big food holiday. And I hope it helped you recalibrate your own thoughts on what to accept and where to draw the line. As always, I put out the first hour of this show for free, no breaks, no sponsors, and if you like what I do and how I do it, you can sign up to be a Plus member and get a second hour with today's guest and every guest. Today we got a lot deeper into some things I was trying to actually put into the first hour because I thought they were really important, but Stephen kept having 
added points to make, which that's great. That's a beautiful thing. It's very important stuff too. But it just means that even more intellectual ammunition can be found in the second hour than even I planned for. And we talked about the lessons learned from computer science when it comes to altering complex information systems, the concerning truth about the flavor saver tomato I think we've all heard about, and we did talk about the religious arguments against GMOs, as well as the question of has the current administration broken from the previous ones in any significant way on this issue? That's something I like to ask because there are so many people swept up in Trump mania in the conspiracy culture. And so when it comes to these major issues, I'm saying, well, is this par for the course or have we changed direction? And it seems like on all the most important stuff, it's stay the course. And the only real swamp draining seems to be related to personal tit-for-tat shit in the political circus. But anyway, but anyway, we also talked about CRISPR technology and how Stephen is quite concerned about that as well. So really good show that I'm proud of. One that I think you could actually share with friends and family because we do stay very measured and down to earth on this one. You know, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> And I really like Stephen's angle that we do have the science and the data on our side. We all want the public perception to match the science, right? Well, then get on board, people, because it's not the GMO critics that are lying to you. It's the GMO profiteers. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but it is probably a sign that I should call it in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the love and support. I hope you had a good holiday despite the poison food, and I'll see you next time. Your move, gene splicing, science suppressors, frankenfood facilitators, and ignorant agents of the corporate machine. Your fucking move. Have a drink and a smoke. Listen to the cast. We shine a shiny spotlight. Put criminals on blast The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance We're looking for the answers To questions never asked So we come to the Carwood For the higher side chats The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild the kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance Involved in 
shady business We try to get a glance We're working on the numbers Resistance must advance The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance